0: You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org.
1: So I want to start up this week's episode with my secret favorite passion, which is roller coasters. Um... I I do want to know how they crash test them, if they do, because I would love to be part of that. But uh, more fun is the new iPhone. Um, It has a crash detection feature, so it can tell if if you've been in a car crash and it'll automatically dial 911, which sounds great. That sounds really smart. Good use of the accelerometers inside the phone. The problem is if you're on a roller coaster, it's going to call 911 because it thinks you've been in a car crash.
2: You know I I, you know, that technology is great. It can supplement a lot of the vehicles on the road that don't have the automatic crash notification. So we really support it, but it seems like there are some times when you need to turn it off to prevent local authorities from being overwhelmed, like at an amusement park where the <laughs> kind of the prevailing theme is, let my body think it's coming as close to a car crash as possible, but for fun. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it it's, it's one of those, I, I, you know, to me, it seems like they need to geofence it. You know, if you know the phones at Kings dominion or six flags or whatever, Disney world or whatever your theme park of choice is, then they should be turning it off. I mean, I, I, I I've got to think that the local police have already been in touch with them in multiple jurisdictions about this if this is really a big problem.
1: So the operating design domain should be restricted around roller coasters. Did I use operating design domain correctly? Is that even how is that it's ODD, right? Did I do it? Nearly correct. Nearly correct. You get
0: 98%. I will, that's It's operational not operating, but, you know, you, you know. get credit for trying. All right. Well that that's good to know. I'm glad I'm making progress.
1: Um so also uh fun articles, a bunch of them in the news this week. Well, I don't know if it's a bunch of them or just everyone just regurgitating the same story, where Americans, surprise, surprise, are overestimating the functionality of their ADAS systems in their cars. And they think, hey, the car's driving itself, where it's really just, you know, automated cruise control and lane following surprise surprise and cadillac users feel more safe with theirs than tesla owners
2: yeah i think it's it kind of highlights one of the paradoxes here of having all of this assistance with with driving the better the the assistance gets it seems the less engaged the drivers become and the more they believe in some of the hype around these things, that they're actually going to be driving them around all the time without any effort on their own part. Um, so it's problematic, and it's, it's one of the reasons why in previous episodes we've talked about some of the problems with uh, Level 2 and Level 3 vehicles and whether automation complacency is going to be the thing that prevents them from truly saving as many lives as they could.
1: So we were just talking just before we started recording about, um, how the AIs in our, in our little Roombas and, and home vacuums, uh, that they'll just keep smashing into the wall over and over again and to chairs and to furniture. But quote unquote, they're learning your room. They've mapped out your house. They keep making the same mistake. And I think Michael, you said your fear is all, well. you know, that's just automated driving, right?
2: Right, I mean that's really what we, what we need to look out for are you know companies deploying vehicles on public roads that aren't ready and you know testing them on the populace. Um we see some hints of that in what Tesla's doing with full self-driving and obviously we talked about GM Cruise last week and some of their their expansion into Austin and Arizona and while they're still having a lot of problems um, in San Francisco, at least from the perspective of the people who are driving behind these vehicles when they stop in the middle of the road,
1: yeah, it's 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 absolutely crazy. And you know, I guess if you have your iPhone, it will say, "Hey, you've been in a you've been on a roller coaster." Um, it'll give you that kind of warning. Um, and so we're overestimating people are overestimating these ADAS systems because essentially that's all they are. They still think they're self driving, probably because of um, that South African guy.
2: Well, that some people really just want to believe, you know, they, <laughs> they believe in their machine overlords and they're ready for it to, to happen. And they want to they want to have all human responsibility, I guess, removed from their driving experience.
1: Well, the positive thing I saw in these articles when they did the research asking people is that people were really happy when the cars remind them, pay attention, put your hands on the steering wheel. Like So that's, I mean, good ish sort of maybe well i mean if it if it's
2: telling you to put your hands on your steering wheel when you're traveling at 75 miles per hour and you're eight feet away from a semi truck in front of you it's not very helpful um i think it's those situations we're, we're most concerned about is when people seem to get disengaged from the task of driving and have a really really hard time getting back into the flow in emergency situations. And um, that's a problem that I don't think anyone's resolved yet.
0: Well, then another another problem is that as these systems get better, they will bring you closer and closer to really life-threatening and hazardous situations before they turn off and tell you are got to take over. So, you know, uh, uh, it's, it becomes a self-limiting process in a sense because as they get better, They're going to put you in danger more often, or I guess to put it a little differently, when they fail, you're really going to be up a creek without a paddle because you're going to be in a very critical situation.
1: Just like my Roomba just keeps driving over and over again into my leg.
0: Has your Roomba ever driven over your cat?
1: No, it avoids the cats, and amazingly, the cats are not afraid of it. Um, which is surprising. They'd probably be afraid of a self-driving car, though. Sorry, your
0: your cats are not digital, so they they compensate for the aggressive actions of your Roomba, like a human being would. Right. Interesting, interesting. Maybe that's the model for the Tesla. You know, and, and we also have to remember that both demolition derbies and bumper cars are very popular American pastimes. So maybe this could become a selling point for the self-driving systems.
1: Oh, you'll get there, you just bounce around a lot. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but then we'd have to install actual bumpers on cars again, the the fenders, those large big protruding metal things that actually bounce. I, I don't think I like this future you two are creating.
0: <laughs> well, they're making great strides with polyurethane these days, so uh, you know. Hey,
1: the the car colors will be awesome. They'll be like lovely those cool colors from the 50s and 60s. And stripes. Oh, got to like the stripes. They're more aerodynamic that way. All right. This is nonsense. Um, okay. Let's talk about Americans and big cars and why we love them so much. So car companies, they, you know, conduct a lot of research and they ask people in the U.S., what do you want in your next car? And us Americans, we say we want a bigger car. And automakers take that literally and make them the size of an iPhone fourteen. Um, they just keep making them bigger and bigger, and then they compare their car that got bigger to the competition, who also made them bigger, and they keep getting bigger. Uh, and so, uh, for example, pickup truck weight since the mid nineties has increased a thousand pounds, and that increases fatalities by forty to fifty percent. And uh, and this is the the fascinating part. If you build a bigger car, you're subject to less regulations. (laughs) So there's a lot to unpack here. Jump in where you feel free. I'm going to take a break.
2: Well, one thing that I try to point out over and over again on the podcast is that, you know, the manufacturers aren't fully culpable in all of this. Americans, we are culpable in, in the increased vehicles weight increased vehicle weights because that's what we're demanding and you know I, I think of where this particularly becomes a problem is for instance right now we see you know we, we're we already building pickups larger and larger and bigger and bigger and now we're adding things into the system um, like electric vehicles which they make a lot of sense, I think, to us in, in in small cars and a lot of the vehicles on the road. But when you start putting them into Hummers and you start putting them into uh, F-150s and uh, other large trucks, then you're increasing the weight of vehicles on the road significantly the um the ev lightning the ford f150 is about 35% he- heavier i believe uh about 2000 pounds heavier than its internal combustion engine uh partner so that's the number one selling vehicle in america and we know that you know gm and chrysler dodge aren't going to be too far behind and producing something similar so right there you have the top three selling vehicles in america increasing their weight by 35 percent, which is you know a terrible thing if you're a pedestrian um or if you're in a vehicle that gets hit by one of these uh monstrosities um in some respects it's it's not good so we are in some ways our demand for large vehicles is killing us um and I think we can safely say that a significant percentage of the folks out there who own and drive these vehicles every day don't do so because they actually need them. Um And that, you know, it, there's a problem there that it's a consumer choice issue and we're functionally kind of undercutting the, you know, the promise that electric vehicles might have by demanding giant vehicles full of, you know, rare earth minerals that, that we really don't need to get the job done to get from point A to point B every day in our lives. Um, so there's a lot going on there and it's, um, it's certainly been batted around politically lately. If you've been uh, reading the news, it's the the electric vehicle has seemed to become a new right wing, left wing talking point.
0: There's kind of an arms race going on. You know, uh, people who buy bigger cars often believe that they are making themselves safer because uh, if you have a bigger car, there's the potential for putting in more. Um, energy absorbing structures in the car so that if you do run into an obstacle, you can be more isolated and insulated from the effect of that. A problem though is that none of the testing that's going on for crash safety, (coughs) excuse me, involves one car hitting another car. And if you have two vehicles, each of which has increased mass, and you run them into each other, there's a dramatic safety impact and a dramatic increase in the potential for injuring passengers in both cars as the force of energy or as the energy of both cars gets translated into the crumples of the cars. You know, it's it's much worse to hit a moving vehicle that's coming at you than it is to hit a stationary obstacle. So none of the safety tests that are taking place really – effectively look at the consequences of increased mass of vehicles and their impact on each other. When they do crash, does,
1: does NHTSA or the Institute for Insurance for Highway Safety, I think I got that one right, close enough, do they actually crash cars into each other, or are they just doing it into stationary
0: objects? Just into stationary objects. They do not crash them into each other. And, and of course, when you do crash A into B. Uh, the combined the combined energy is dramatically increased and the statistics show that that you know as the cars get heavier as the cars get more massive and uh especially in impacts with each other there is a dramatic rise in the rate of fatalities associated with those increased massive increasingly massive vehicles
1: Okay, so that a normal crash will happen. I, I don't know. You, you tell me what's the the typical crash situation? Where is it? Is it someone running into a stationary object, someone hitting another vehicle, or is it someone hitting a pedestrian? Or is there some other choice in there? Or is it someone driving off a roller coaster?
0: I don't have the answer to that. Michael, do you know just, uh, single car vehicles more likely, or single car crashes more likely than multiple car crashes? I simply don't know.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. Single car crashes are much more likely. In fact, I believe they make up a, a far greater percentage of the overall fatalities each year than multi-car crashes. But, but
1: a single car, what exactly does that mean? Is That, that mean, means I've one
2: vehicle, stolen? no impact with another vehicle or not even, you know, another vehicle didn't even cause the crash. Uh, typically, it's, Usually, you know, someone falling asleep, someone drinking, someone losing control of their vehicle when when, not, when no one else is around.
0: Uh-huh. But even there, looking at, looking at the single vehicle uh, crashes, you've got to remember that all the safety devices that are on the highways, the guardrails, the crash absorption uh, materials, the barriers that you see, the barrels in front of stationary objects, all those were designed years ago. And they were put in place years ago and none of them were designed for the current mass of the vehicles that are on the roads. So you are jeopardizing yourself once again in a massive vehicle simply by overwhelming the safety devices that have been put in place on the side of the road, which, you know, of course, you know, are going to damage your vehicle anyway if you hit it at a high speed, but they are increasingly being overwhelmed. By the increased mass of the vehicles. Do,
1: is anyone, in the Department of Transportation or somebody else, looking to upgrade those things? Because the only thing I know of those, you know, those orange barriers, it seems from action movies, they're full of water. And it looks awesome when you hit them at high speed.
0: Right. Well, that awesomeness is energy being dissipated. Okay, so the heavier your vehicle is, the more awesome, the more awesomoity you're going to get out of those barrels exploding. That um, sounds like an advertisement for everyone buying a Mac truck. That's what I just heard. Yeah, well, if if that's your objective to have a spectacle that is, you know, Instagram worthy, then by all means. Oh, that's
1: great! I'll be using my phone, taking video of it while I do this, and then when the iPhone tries to call nine one one, I'll be like roller coaster.
0: Hey, we're back to TikTok. You know, <laughs> yeah. but if you're if you're recording for TikTok on your new iPhone. Not only can it get the image, but it'll automatically call emergency services. Okay, so hey, explain this to me about the
1: uh, that auto manufacturers—they can build when they're building these bigger cars, they keep building bigger ones. And there's um, Ford and GM um, and Chrysler. They're they're discontinuing their smaller cars, their compact cars, the size of a car that I have. Uh, mm-hmm. But if they build bigger cars, how are they subject to less regulations around pollution controls? around safety measures? Like, how, how does that happen? A, a lot of it happened back, um, well, it's it's a long
2: story going back to the 70s, but it happened due to the corporate average fuel economy standards, the CAFE standards that um, first only applied to passenger smaller passenger cars and then applied to what they call light trucks. And so they kind of staggered the way those um, – fuel economy standards applied to vehicles and it created some exemptions along the way. And, 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 you know, in many ways there are, you know, the heavier trucks have always been subject to somewhat less strict standards. There's some problems with the roof strength standard applying to the heavier pickups. Um, There's, always been a pretty strong lobby from the heavy truck and heavy vehicle industry that has limited a lot of the safety advances that we've seen in passenger cars um you know in many ways prevented them from reaching the heavier trucks airbags are one example they were delayed getting into heavier vehicles um and some of the the heavier
1: standards the heavier truck industry you're talking about ford and talking general about ford, any any
2: truck that weighs over money. over you know 6 pounds you're talking about the big f-450s and the you know the kind of things that you see guys towing massive right.
1: trailers with but they're not this is not i mean you know um freightliner necessarily it's ford and general motors and yeah Chryler. yeah
2: okay. and they've you know and and so like with the roof crush issue it those vehicles are so heavy that it, to meet the roof crush standard, it requires them to invest a lot of money in the roof structure of these vehicles. And so they didn't want to do that. So they lobbied against it and they got an exemption um or they didn't get added to the regulation. Um So it's, it's been an ongoing issue for many years and it's, you know, what they're effectively doing though, is they're, while they're also lobbying to make money and they're moving away from sedans because they're not selling them. Um, If sedans were selling, they would be selling them the, the, in many ways, you know, we can blame it on their marketing and other things, but you know, Americans are the ones demanding these larger cars and the bigger they get, you know, the, the less regulated they might be. I mean, I cringe to when I see uh, these really, really large vehicles that are, Internal combustion engines, you know, driving through a neighborhood like a Hummer, driving through the neighborhood and thinking, why in the hell do you need that car? I mean, what what's going on? And thinking about, you know, taking the vehicles we have on the road today, all these massive SUVs, all these giant vans and things and transitioning them to electric is a losing proposition in my mind, particularly for pedestrians and for people who get hit by those vehicles, because they're going to be not just a little heavier, but significantly heavier. And so I, I think that's something that the industry and government and we as Americans really need to be smarter about as we move forward here to make sure that, you know, if EVs are are going to work is still you know somewhat of a question and pursuing them in this way almost to me ensures that in the end we're going to be keeping internal combustion engines around a little longer
1: that's interesting so the the last part of this uh section on these uh how we love these uh, large cars. There's an interesting statistic where the uh the, the, the height of a lot of these trucks, the Ford F one fifties, the Dodge Ram and whatnot, the uh they have a blind spot of eleven feet in front of them. So you're sitting in the car and you can't see eleven feet in front of you. So someone in my tiny little car, I'm invisible. Um I already know the answer. Why are there no regulations around this? Because no one cares. There's that. you know
2: there's never the visit, the frontal visibility standards that it's have typically apply to the windshield and making sure your wipers are work and your defogging defro- and defrosting systems are installed and working. There's never been uh, a real effort to address the frontal visibility of vehicles as far as whether the driver can actually see over the hood, because <laughs> there haven't been a lot of problems there. And, 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 and historically, um, now that we're seeing these pickups and SUVs with these massively raised hoods that are limiting driver frontal visibility, we're starting to see a lot of problems. We've talked about uh, front overs and driveways uh, before on the podcast, I believe, where we're seeing, you know, you can stack 12 kids in front of a car and the driver has no idea they're there.
1: Um, and the kids so, standing on top of each other's shoulders wearing a large <laughs> coat? Nah, not to
2: on top it. of each other's okay. shoulders, but but – Stacked horizontally, I guess, would be the way. Um, and, you know, there's there's a number of trucks that are so high you can't see short people that are adults standing right in front of them, you know, lined up. So it's, you know, it's another example of consumer demand going in a direction that's unsafe, Um these massive grills are also at head height for many pedestrians, and there's just a number of issues that these big cars are creating beyond simply the EV weight um, issue that's coming. Um, these things are on the roads right now and causing a lot of the problems that we've seen with the the rise in pedestrian fatalities and injuries.
1: So, but wouldn't you imagine with EVs – because aerodynamics are so key in terms of long range wouldn't (laughs) i can see you starting to laugh already wouldn't these grills become more sculpted more less height so you'd have more airflow i know the f-150 lightning looks just like the the ice f-150 but i think that's kind of a smart move to help people transition to something different but i mean what wouldn't we be getting more into that curve and And you're both looking at me like I'm so naive.
2: Well, I mean, I would hope so. I would hope NHTSA would put in a hood and bumper standard that it's been talking about for a dozen years or more that the Europeans already have to protect pedestrians. Um, The reason it hadn't been put in place is because, you know, look at the top three selling vehicles in America and look at how high their grill heights are. It's, you know, it's sheerly money driving this and consumer demand. And there's little effort at all to regulate the problem and to protect Americans. So there's where your issue is.
0: There's no engineering reason for the grill heights to be so high. It's purely stylistic. People who are buying pickup trucks and SUVs just seem to like really massive, imposing, looking front ends on their vehicles. it has got nothing to do with engineering or airflow.
1: Well, that's how I describe myself. Massive front end. And with that, let's go into Recall Roundup. Strap
0: in. Time for the Recall Roundup.
1: Um, So Rivian, for those of you who don't know, uh, they're a electric uh, truck maker. I don't know if they make anything else. Rivian, it's one of these things, if you're into tech stuff, you go, hey, this is pretty cool. If you're into cars, this is really neat. And Rivian just had a recall every truck they've ever manufactured. Um, which was you know eleven, not not a lot. Um, and so <laughs> I don't have the data right in front of you, but um, it says was it twenty five thousand vehicles? No, that's how many vehicles. No, it was, I be- think it was around twelve thousand. Well, or yeah, and so uh, this was this sounds like they just had a series of nothing but Fridays, where it was some weird basic stuff. It wasn't anything around computer software. It wasn't anything around advanced systems or anything like that. It was it was a, a bolt was wrong or something like that.
2: Yeah, right? they they just they hadn't tightened fasteners properly on the um front upper control arm and steering knuckle, which is <laughs> you know, as far as recalls go, it's pretty simple. They they may have to replace parts if some of the vehicles had been damaged, but I imagine that will be fairly low. They're really just tightening a couple of steering knuckles. And, you know, some of the articles that come out when you see these things make me laugh. You know, there's they're, I think one was claiming that Rivian is ruined um, because they've had to recall all their vehicles. Well, you know, they just literally have to pull them into the dealership and tighten a bolt. This isn't a, you know, two thousand dollar recall repair that's going to drive the company to bankruptcy. It's it's this ultra hype EV investor kind of media that's pushing these stories that just make absolutely no sense when you look at the numbers on the ground. Um, if Rivian doesn't succeed, it's going to have nothing to do with this recall, but it may have something to do with the fact that they're building 7,500 pound pickup trucks.
1: Wow. Okay. There's a, there's a sign outside just the, the street next to me uh, It enters the, the Henry Hudson Parkway. And there's a sign. They, they put up the New York city department of transportation said maximum vehicle weight, 6,000 pounds. And I just saw a Rivian the other day outside my window going down there. Mm. Mm. It's road, road, roads collapsing. It's all over now.
2: Yeah. That's, you know, that, that was also an article I saw it was on um the car haulers are petitioning the federal government to increase the allowed weight they can carry on the car haulers from 80,000 pounds to 88,000 pounds so that they can accommodate
1: EVs. Hmm. All right. Well, next in the recall roundup, my favorite subject, motorcycles. Harley Davidson is recalling, uh, the RH nine, seven, five nightster. On certain model year 2022s, because they may have a weld quality issue that could lead to separation between the inner and outer sections of the handlebar. Uh, This another another recall that just strikes me as a late Friday afternoon issue. Um, Am I am I wrong?
2: Well, on this one, it was they received one report from one guy in August, and they've got a recall now after investing the issue in october so i you know you got to give harley davidson props where it's due they did it they did their due diligence and got a recall out but um i wanted to make sure that i pointed this one out to you in case your son had already bought a harley
1: Davidson. oh hell no he'd be homeless and also he wouldn't know where did the money come from and he only has a learner's permit so um okay that's all i got for recall roundup um and now, before we jump into the to the towel, Fred, uh, this is the um, dumb political statement of the week where the chief financial officer for the state of Florida thinks EV batteries are a ticking time bomb after Hurricane Ian. Um, this is just pure someone didn't finish, you know, middle school type nonsense going on. Um,
2: I don't know. I mean, I, there have there. I mean, I know there's been at least one fire in an EV down there. I, I haven't seen any data suggesting there's some giant rash of them. Um, I did read some articles that were suggesting that international standards ensure that electric vehicles are sealed in such a way that saltwater intrusion shouldn't be an issue. Knowing what I know about. America's regulatory, um, efforts in this area, I would suggest that that may not be correct. Um, so, you know, ice vehicles are terribly, um, affected by saltwater intrusion. I mean, once you get saltwater in in a vehicle with any type of electrical system, it's probably a huge, uh, failure. So I don't know. I, I don't know if there is a higher risk of, ev fire when they've been submerged in salt water fred might know a little more than i about both the international standards and that
1: yeah fred who's uh more full of it uh the florida cfo or me
0: i don't think there's any design requirement for extended immersion in salt water uh, among the ev designers uh, uh, you know there are there are standards for sealing electronics that are exposed to ambient salt water and salt spray and things like that but you know the the, the taking your whole vehicle and dousing it in the ocean that's that's a whole new set of circumstances so hard to hard to qualify that i'm unaware of a rash of fires equally uh maybe the the bridge to crimea i don't know maybe that was had something to do with that but
1: But, but is there any, do do you know of any technical reason why a a lithium ion battery would become a ticking time bomb if it was submerged in salt water?
0: No, I can't think of any reason why it would tick. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, modern bombs vibrate, but would it, it's okay. This just seems like political theater.
2: Well, we've often used the phrase ticking time bomb to describe the Takata airbags, because in that case, you know, the, 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 de- the the ammonium nitrate degrades slowly over time and thus is somewhat of a ticking time bomb in this case i there's got to be so many different you know outcomes depending on what kind of car you what kind of ev you're driving i mean i just i i just don't know that there's truly a pattern here of this occurring so you know, if the chief financial officer of Florida wants to send us details on all of these events, we'd love to
1: see them. Yeah, I think mm. more of it's a ticking time bomb for the insurance industry in Florida. Um, uh, Yeah, that that's that's I don't know what's going to happen there.
2: And that probably goes well beyond our discussions when you talk about housing and things. But there's got to be a lot of ruined cars down there from the storm that, you know, consumers need to be on the lookout for because I can guarantee you many of them will be flooding the market soon. Um, <laughs> and you can't, I'm not sure, you know, I know that Louisiana and New Jersey after Sandy, and I believe Texas have passed some pretty um, strong salvage provisions in their laws that that make you mark flood damage vehicles um, after situations like this. I'm not sure about offhand what florida's law is on that um but they certainly need one um down there and, and there's probably needed one for years they may already have one um that prevents these vehicles from being sold to unsuspecting consumers down the road
0: it was a report of a an individual vehicle uh in florida there an ev that did spontaneously uh catch fire it was very difficult to extinguish and after being extinguished uh it spontaneously resumed burning several times, including after it was put on a tow truck and after it was brought to the salvage yard. I don't know that, that that was uniquely associated with the salt water. That has been reported in other circumstances for other EVs that had nothing to do with salt water immersion. Um, again, the di- difference between correlation and causality, right? We've talked about that. So we, we just don't know at this point if there is a. Uh, a well-established link between the saltwater immersion and the fires in the electric vehicles. Well, I think one one
2: thing we do it. know from that story is that emergency and first first responders and the folks who are dealing with these fires are not educated well enough yet on on how to handle them. You know. <laughs> You should not be putting, putting anything on a, on another vehicle or towing it to any facility. You should be towing these things out to the middle of a giant sandbar or field somewhere for a, a day or two until, you know, they're not going to reignite. Um, so that does highlight at least the um, kind of the, the there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And, and some of the companies have kind of started to do it, but I think the NTSB has pointed this out before that, um, Fire departments around the country really need need better training on how to handle these incidents because they're happening everywhere.
0: We've talked about yeah. that too. the The Tesla recommendation that you extinguish a Tesla fire using three thousand gallons of water versus the design requirement for fire engines that they have three hundred gallons of water. So there's a you know potential that you need to follow your Tesla with ten fire trucks in order to be prepared to safely extinguish that fire
2: and that doesn't even get into all the everything that's running off of a battery in a fire while it's being extinguished by waters i mean would you want that in your backyard <laughs> it just seems really uh i'm sure there are multiple bad chemicals coming off batteries and washing you know into wherever it is that these crashes occur so there's that's a problem. I would think some sort of environmental issue that, that needs to be contained every time one of these things is, uh, burning and then requires 3000 and even up to 30,000 gallons of water, as is the
1: case uh, that we've seen in some, some circumstances. All right. So save for your Tesla, save for 10 fire trucks. And if you can do all of that, i think you're doing better off than all of us and if you can do all of that actually you can go to autosafety.org right now and donate okay you got that kind of cash line around you know if you got the kind of cash you're like hey i'm gonna pay for tesla full self-driving beta i'm gonna you know push my life on the line i don't wanna i wanna skydive without a parachute before you do that just you know give some money to the center for auto safety i'm not skimming a lot off the top but just enough and now fred are you ready for it have you have you stretched have you have you meditated are
0: you ready to- i have i have i'm ready for the Tao the Tao? of Fred. you've now entered the dow of fred <laughs> great today's uh
1: acronym which you're going to define right off the bat so we don't get stuck in that situation again
0: is eev tell us eev um you have to help me with this. This is enormous electric vehicle, right?
2: Right. That's I that's like, one we, thing that was. I've come up with a few things. There's there's ego enhancement venture. That's a good one. And then there's also <laughs> endowment enhancement uh, vessel. There we go.
1: Wait, this isn't even a real industry term. This is Michael Brooks just trying to trying to you know start a little viral thing.
2: No, I just think that those are really, you know, we have EVs, which are the vehicles that could actually make a difference um in things like our our reliance on fossil fuels and climate change. And then we have EEVs, which are the Hummers and the giant trucks that Americans that don't need them um seem to demand that are probably, you know, and could undermine the promise of EVs. So those are ego enhancement vessels
0: i think all right fred take it away all right so i'm going to become unpopular with all of my liberal friends i want to be clear at the beginning of this that i my personal politics is somewhere to the left of eugene Debs. so please don't mistake me for one of those people you've you read on fox news but i'm reading a report by the brookings institution which uh up till this point has always had a really sterling uh, image in my own mind the title of the report is the moment for evs strategies to transform american roads um if any of you would like the reference please just send a comment to us at center for auto safety we'll be happy to provide the reference but as i've gone through this which basically um, extols the virtues of electric vehicles and how they're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, and the carbon footprint, Um, it it strikes me that it's just promotional bullshit, and I really don't understand that. So here's the key paragraph. It reads, EVs are three times more mechanically efficient than gas-powered cars, with 59 to 62% of the electrical energy being converted into power to turn the wheels, compared to 17 to 21% of fuel energy conversion in traditional vehicles. Now, that sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. And you, you have to raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm all for EVs. So let's take it apart, as I want to do. Um, it's very misleading, okay? Because what you're doing with this comparison is you're comparing the electrical energy in a vehicle to the fuel in the fuel tank. Somehow, the, that electrical energy has to get into the battery, though. And so in order to do an apples-to-apples comparison, you've got to trace this back to the origin of the electricity that's gone into the, the battery of the car. So I, I, of course, did that. And looking at reasonable numbers, um, you start with the typical efficiency of a uh, utilities electric generating plant, which is in, in the range of 31%. Then you have line losses, transmission losses, right? Because you've got to send the electricity over wires. And that's of the order of 10%. Then you've got to charge your battery. And uh, many of you have charged your phones and have discovered as you pulled the plug on it that the charger was warm. Okay, this is inefficiency. This is lost energy this could being dissipated as heat. So I've just credited that as being 1% or 2%. I don't know what the real number is. But if you add all of that up, you end up with an efficiency that's about 17 to 21%. Well, or it's about 17% adding up all those efficiencies. Now, quoting from the report again, it says this is comparable to 17 to 21% fuel conversion efficiency conversion in traditional vehicles. So you're comparing something like 17% to something like 17%. Which means there's really very small, or maybe no, net gain associated with electric vehicles if you compare it to a conventional electric generating uh, facility, and assume that your energy comes from there. Okay, so that's a little geeky. Does that mean you shouldn't get? Or Anthony, I see you're shaking your head up and down. Yes, it's a little geeky. Anything it, no, unclear about that? No, I'm, I'm very clear about it. But I'm I'm thinking this is,
1: um, uh, two things. This seems like a Ideally, a short-term problem as the U.S. and the rest of the world upgrades their energy infrastructure. Um, So coal and things that are highly polluting um, and oil get out of the system. And also, uh, from my very limited sample of EV owners, most of them have solar
0: panels at home and they do all of their charging at home. How does the math work out on that? Well, uh, very astute observations and I'm glad you asked. So there's a couple things that you can do. One of the things you can do and should be done is uh, all of the utility generating plants should be converted to cogeneration. By converting to cogeneration, which means you use the waste heat from the initial electric generation to generate even more electricity. By doing that, you can improve the overall efficiency dramatically Um, instead of going from about one-third, you can go up to about 50% to maybe even 60% conversion of that fuel, whether it's coal or gas or oil or whatever it is, to usable electrical energy. That can and should be done. It requires the investment in the utility structure, but that would be a key part of the overall energy infrastructure that you're talking about. If you do that, concomitant with the trans, uh, transformation of the, elect- of the car fleet into an electrically powered fleet, you would, in fact, see dramatic savings in the overall carbon footprint. Um, you talked about putting solar panels on your house, and and that's an interesting alternative. But I've looked at that a little bit, and you'd need to put on, with various assumptions, uh, solar panels that are about 400 square feet okay. so that's Most roughly 20,000 some odd dollars to put that on your on your house. Problem is that usually people are driving their cars to work so when the sun is out you can't charge your car so you have gotta also put in batteries that can carry enough uh, energy now the batteries are inefficient because you've got to charge them and discharge them, right? So that increases the four hundred square feet to probably something like five hundred square feet. So you're looking at solar panels and batteries in the range of forty 000 to fifty thousand dollars in order to charge your electric vehicle with um, solar powered electricity with a lot of assumptions. Now maybe you you use your car a lot less than fully charging it every day, and maybe you don't have the bigger batteries. So, yeah, there's a lot of, of giving these numbers depending on usage. But the point is, it's expensive. You're um, talking tens of thousands of dollars to put enough solar power on your house in a sunny climate with no clouds to charge your electric vehicle. Now, many of us don't happen to live in sunny climates with no clouds, with a clear shot at the sun. So... Uh, you know, again, if you aren't in one of those ideal situations, the solar panels get bigger and bigger and bigger. So, mm-hmm. is, is that practical? I don't know. That's a hell of a lot of solar panels. Well, I mean, that's the current efficiency of solar
1: panels. And also, looking at like the, you can pull up, uh, what is it, the solar map, whatnot. Even as far north as the state of Maine, you can get sun ratings of like 80, which is greater than you can get in some areas much farther south. Is that help with this math or not or is this again it strikes me as being um kind of early adopter issues as these things keep getting better and better and and what you're talking about with the battery efficiency is it could reach 50 percent whereas you know ice vehicles they're
0: never going to get anywhere near that right and that's the problem i think that's the policy problem that's at the core of this if you look at what's available today and what's practical today uh, really marginal benefits associated with electric vehicles. If you look at the future, if you look at aspirational investments like the cogeneration, like more efficient solar panels, like solid-state batteries, like all this, all this other stuff that might someday happen, God willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, which a friend of mine used to call Pittsbab, pie in the sky, by and by. Okay. Um, I kind of like that expression, but if so, if you add the electric vehicles to a healthy dose of Pitsbab, then, yeah, everything looks great. The question is, uh, is all that Pitsbab going to happen? You know, the, the policies that are in place with the U.S. government right now don't encourage that. There's very little incentive for utility to make the significant investment required for cogeneration compared to just burning the fuels inefficiently and selling electricity as it is. That's why they do what they do, right? Because there's nobody forcing them to do a better job with the carbon footprint than they're currently doing. Now,
1: pretend you're a nation that's called Germany and there's this war going on and all of your natural gas gets cut off. Are nations like Germany going to, uh, basically they have to change their energy infrastructure almost overnight and most of Europe does so they can get off of Russian gas. Is that force going to happen where they have to upgrade and change their situation to become much more energy efficient, then ideally, again, my pie in the sky, lowering the cost
0: of these technologies and importing them to the U.S. They would be well advised to do that. Can they make that significant investment quickly to make that happen? It's not clear. They're already driving to uh, solar-powered Sources, particularly wind, which is economically attractive, and it's a readily available resource for a lot of the world, um, and that would be a great way of driving down the carbon emissions, not only for electric vehicles, but also for every other technology that's around. But I, so I want to make a little rant here, which is that it's important for us on on our side of the political spectrum to recognize that there's an awful lot of aspirational nonsense involved in the statements about electric uh, electric vehicles. And really, that's going to come back to bite us in the ass at some point when the folks on Fox News turn around and say, nah, 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 you guys didn't do it. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I think it would be really useful for somebody to look carefully at those countries that have invested in uh, a lot of electric vehicles mostly in scandinavia and see whether or not there's any evidence that they have in fact decreased their carbon footprint or whether or not there is uh an incentive there to use those more efficient generating technologies the more efficient solar technologies to actually address the you know the real source of this carbon uh footprint which is gross inefficiency gross inefficiency driven by economics End of rant. End of Dow <laughs> Fred for today.
1: That that was excellent. I really appreciated that. That was very helpful. I still want to get an EV um, because it
0: will weigh more. And so when I smash into somebody, I have a better chance of surviving. Well, there's that. There are also, you know, you can go zero to 60 in three seconds, which is very important for everybody. I, and, yeah. they're, and they're fun. So, you know, there's, there's no negative rationale for not buying one compared with the energy footprint of a gas vehicle. So don't feel bad if you get one that you're overly polluting the earth, but don't delude yourself into thinking that you're, you know, uh, an earth warrior by (laughs) buying one of those right now. I just really want to stick it to Saudi Arabia. It makes no logical
1: sense. Anyway, that's an excellent section on the, the Tao Tao of Fred. Um I I think we've we've uh, enjoyed uh wasting enough people's time today. Listeners, if you have feedback, contact at autosafety.org. Send whatever you want except for that one guy who keeps sending spam in. We're not going to talk about your product. I don't care how cool it is or how wonderful it is. Not going to happen. Um but anyone else, hey, if you've got an EV and you've charged with its solar on your house, Tell us what you think. Is it great? Is it bad? Is your electricity lower? Is your uh your bowel movements more regular? What's going on there? Or if you're like, you know what, I'm always gonna stick to burning gasoline and get the heaviest car possible and smash into as much as I can, great. Um, please let us know. And as always, donate, subscribe, tell your friends, um, and and you know, always wear your seatbelt. So thanks, listeners.
0: Thank Thanks you very, much, very much, listeners. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I don't know if we're talking to them so much as at them. Well, we need to get some responses. Yeah, we
1: do. We do. it's talking with, right? We can work the prepositions. I don't know. The outro music is playing right now.
0: For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.